What is going on, Rising Giants? Welcome to the show with your hosts, Max and Dom, chatting with the boldest and most inspiring entrepreneurs and investors in the highest potential markets of Southeast Asia. The journey begins in Cambodia. We are very excited to share with your guest today, Kirtan Menon, private equity investor working for one of the leading players globally that operates in the key frontier markets of Southeast Asia, Africa, and Central Asia. In the episode, we dive into the fundamentals driving frontier markets today, sectors with the highest potential of consistent returns, and the fuzzy versus the techie, why having proper soft skills make you stand out in the 21st century investment industry. This episode is full of golden nuggets from Kirtan about frontier market investing, and we did our best to mine as much as we could during our conversation with him. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter, one of the best five-minute Monday morning reads to start off your week covering the startup and venture capital ecosystem in Southeast Asia. And now, back to the show. Okay, great. Uh, Kirtan, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. We are so excited to have you as a guest. And we are very excited to dive into uh, frontier market and emerging market investing with you. I think a great place to start would be if you can talk us through your journey a little bit and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Thanks so much, Dom. And uh, thanks, Max, as well, uh, for, for inviting me on this uh, on this podcast. Um, assuming you you sort of mean, you know, how I got into private equity, like, I, you know, I, I actually had a relatively unorthodox entry into the PE industry, um, you know, the norm usually is sort of to go from investment banking uh, where people usually spend about two to three years and then in some cases move into private equity. Um, in my case, I actually started off uh, in this like uh, pan-European, uh, you know, enterprise software focused VC based in London, um, where I was for about a year. Uh, the VC I, I worked with actually focused on Series A enterprise software investments, which was extremely interesting. Uh, I then had this opportunity to move over to the current uh, private equity that I that I work for, and I and I made that move in um, 2019. And maybe could you give a little bit more color into what was the process like when you first got into the venture capital space? Uh, maybe with uh, SGI Frontier Capital, um, it, it would be interesting to to understand that route, especially since it was non traditional investment banking. Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was definitely learning a lot on the job. I actually did an internship um, with uh, that that family office that you mentioned, SGI. Um, you know, back in two thousand and seventeen, so in my penultimate year um, of university, and so you know, getting back into the sort of groove of things after the VC was, was not uh, too, too, you know, it wasn't too challenging in the sense that I understood the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the mechanism of how things worked in, especially for emerging market investments. But then again, of course, without a finance background and stuff, it, it you know, there is a much steeper learning curve, which, um, which I just had to come to grips with and, um, and, and, and still am, <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a continuous learning experience for sure. Yeah, that's very exciting too, because I'm sure there are a lot of people that listen to the show that may not necessarily have that traditional finance background. And mm -hmm. it's very inspiring to hear that you can come from any sort of background and go into the world of frontier emerging market investing, um, even if you know if you have that passion or, or strong interest in it. And it would be interesting as well to talk a little bit more about maybe where that spark was, where you first grew interest into investing in these markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think probably my first trip to East Africa in 2014, um, my father was actually traveling for work and actually invited me along since, uh, you know, I was sort of in this unique transitionary phase in my life between completing uh, my military service and which is mandatory in Singapore. Um, and, and then heading off to college. So we went to Rwanda and Ethiopia, which is in East Africa, and uh, I was just totally blown away. I mean, in the case of Ethiopia, of course, I didn't have a live point of reference, um, you know, because I hadn't previously visited, but I could read the progress through just conversations with locals and quickly understood sort of how and why, uh, you know, it succeeded in becoming one of the fastest growing economies. Uh, you know, I mean, the, Ethiopia has posted like nine to 10% you know, average GDP growth over the last decade, uh, which is comparatively higher compared to most of its peers in Africa. 
and um, and and also it's, it's interestingly it's like Africa's second most populous country, right? It has about 110 million people, which I didn't fully appreciate before going there. So you know, um, that that was that was all very like sort of surprising and and, and amazing to me. Um, and then and then of course in in the case of Rwanda. Um, you know, um, it, it was also amazing to visit, you know, of course, the nation's sort of like, you know, wounds from its like, you know, horrific, like 94, 1994, like genocide, you know, you can still kind of feel that when you speak to locals, um, not that you'd pry or anything, but you, you can feel it when you talk to them. And unlike a decade ago, where, you know, Kigali's, which is the capital city, uh, you know, where the roads were totally unpaved and electricity was like sporadic, things have like changed dramatically from from what I understood. And, and it's really interesting because the capital city of Rwanda, it's sort of become this like center of like urban excellence, at least based on their like, you know, 2050 master plan. And, um, and what's another really proud moment is because like when I was going there, you know, my dad was obviously going there for, for government work and um, together with us was this other group, a Singaporean uh, urban infrastructure group that was actually helping the, the, the sort of Rwanda government to develop their city into a luxury city uh, by 2050. So I was actually really happy to hear about that collaboration. And, you know, I, 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 I took more of an interest actually in learning about East Africa as a result of that. And, you know, just seeing all these opportunities in Ethiopia and Rwanda just sort of really pushed me to learn more about frontier markets. And then it wasn't just, you know, limited to East Africa and then, it, you know, went into Southeast Asia as well. So yeah, soon after that East Africa trip, I went to college and then in my pen penultimate year of university, I took on that internship opportunity with that family office you mentioned. And, um, and, and yeah, and then, you know, coincidentally, you know, we now look at Ethiopia as well as one of our main markets and have portfolio companies there. So it's all kind of come full circle. It's very incredible to have such a profound experience early on in your, in your career and be able to leverage that into thinking about how you want to pursue the rest of your career from there. And I think mm -hmm. what um, could be interesting is in your current position now, um, how have you seen these industry participants change over time, maybe from that initial um, experience that you had to today? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really speak to how the industry participants have changed over a long period of time, because I haven't been in the industry for a super long time. But as of recently, what I've noticed is that, you know, PE firms are definitely um, you know, I guess, number one, adopting a range of approaches to deal with, um, with COVID, right, and the wake of COVID, rather, uh, since we're, you know, sort of in that, in that phase. Um, and I think some, some firms are sort of pivoting, uh, you know, their portfolio companies into future growth, at others, they're riding out the storm with cost cuts. And I think, you know, some P's are like kind of hibernating some businesses as well with sufficient reserves. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, as far as the aftermath of COVID goes, I think there's, there needs to be, uh, I mean, a lot of private equities have really taken more time to be more prepared and more thoughtful. Um, you know, at the same time, I think a lot of firms are just trying to focus on the key sectors and sticking to principles of identifying good companies in those industries that, you know, have room to grow. So that's probably the most logical strategy across the board like there's no real need to shift an investment approach if you're already investing in companies with strong growth and committed management teams so there isn't like a massive change at least from my vantage point um but I, maybe one other like shift to mention that i think is happening uh you know quite quickly and and, and something that really was in the works even pre-covid is that lps and gps um are increasingly you know taking climate change and other environmental factors into account when making uh investment decisions so these are like topics that you know were i mean they're pretty prominent across uh, sort of the global investment community, not not just uh, you know amongst like say development finance institutions or whatnot, um, and I and I also don't think that all commercial LPs quite yet you know sort of uh, have these restrictions or you know in terms of how they allocate their 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 capital based on environmental factors, uh, but I think that there is increasing pressure that is you know kind of like causing this the shift to happen at an accelerated rate which is which i think is a a shift that is quite interesting no completely agree and especially in um where where i'm working at now we do have a lot of involvement with 
um, renewable energy and climate change focused mm-hmm. companies. And it's very, um, it's very uh, good to know that there's a lot of investors that have this interest in pursuing these opportunities, especially in Southeast Asia, as that's uh, primarily the focus mm-hmm. of our company. I think it would be interesting to touch on a little bit about uh, maybe some of the other prominent sectors that you see um, that are that are very like uh, that are very uh, enticing or uh, interesting at this time. Yeah, sure. I mean, broadly speaking, I think um, you know, for 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 you know, um, emerging markets, right? It's tough to not look at the consumer sector. I mean, it's really where the largest opportunity is, especially from an EM perspective. I mean, you know, if you look at the consuming class in emerging markets. Uh, it'll be about like 4.2 billion people in, you know, across emerging markets by like 2025, which is, you know, that accounts for like 30 trillion in terms of, uh, you know, just value. And, and that's like half of the global uh, total as it is. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a massive amount that, uh, you know, falls in the emerging market um, kind of bucket, if you will. And as soon as people start sort of making money in an economy, they they start spending on things that they believe will basically advantage their next generation. So, you know, I think within that, you know, with that said, I think healthcare and education are two two areas where, you know, there, there's a lot of room for growth. And I think, um, you know, will require a lot of investments in, in the coming years. Um, as well as personal insurance and life insurance and so on. Uh, I mean, we actually focus a bit more and I look at sort of like, you know, um, logistics and transport as, as, as one uh, main thing and, and telco as, as also another uh, main, main kind of category. And it's not just telco, but it's really the combination of like cell towers, fiber, data centers, you know, which you can kind of bundle up as like new economy um, infrastructure, if you will. So, yeah, I mean, those are two areas that we that we really focus on. And um, there's just a rapid growth, I think, in like data consumption, right, which is characterized in a way because of the shift from mobile technology use and just increased internet penetration, which I'm sure you guys are also seeing in, in you know, various markets in Southeast Asia. And if you think about it, these shifts are kind of driven by like this rapid evolution of like consumer demand um and you know which is obviously rising um you know year year by year and then you know covid with with covid happening uh you know that just created this surge in network demand where everyone is just confined for you know to working from home and and seeking entertainment from home and many of these behavioral changes i think are just probably going to stay on in the post-covid world so so, if, you know, in that regard, uh, you know, we're probably going to be seeing, you know, more video calls instead of face-to-face meetings, more consumption of streaming services at home, more e-commerce over brick and mortar options, and like, you know, just more cashless transactions on, on the whole. And uh, granted, all these behavioral changes sort of stick, um, there will be higher levels of data consumptions. And, and, and so, you know, cell towers, fiber, data sets centers and so on will um you know sort of uh, be the winners in, in in that in that in that sense um you know i think uh, another kind of key area that that uh you know obviously within that as well uh you know just to add on uh you know mobile network operators as well will will, will benefit quite a bit from from these patterns so so that's something to 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 sort of you know be be aware of um and then, and then the second kind of main thing is like logistics and transport, right? So that's, that's, that's another thing that I focus on. And, you know, there's various subsectors across transport and logistics that have been pretty hard hit, um, you know, from a short-term kind of growth perspective uh, by COVID. Um, but, you know, there's increasingly the shift towards delivery services, uh, you know, like uh, last mile logistics and so on that, that will basically, uh, you know, that will most likely continue in the post-COVID era. So, um, so yeah, I mean, excited about that. And especially with increased urbanization, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of promise in, in that space as well. And we're actually seeing that, um, you know, if you, if you look at, um, if you look at some e-commerce platform providers, like in South and Southeast Asia, like, you know, and even in Africa, like Jumia in Kenya and Tanzania, and, you know, Lazada Group, Ninja Van, Shopee in Indonesia, uh, and Philippines and Vietnam. I mean, yeah, there's significant runway, I think, in e-commerce uh, to catch up to the, you know, sort of penetration rates that we see in other 
larger, um, you know, emerging markets, you know, whether it's BRIC or the BRIC countries, you know, Brazil, Russia, into China, or, you know, especially China. No, thank you for, for defining all that. And it's, it's, it's a lot, right? The COVID has really led to this acceleration of all these technologies and um, especially in, in e-commerce and um, uh, among other things. But I, I think one of something that would be really interesting to dive into is with all of this opportunity and this growth across all these sectors, how is it that you approach it with maybe deal sourcing activities and looking at these frontier and emerging markets and seeing, okay, we know that there's the opportunity there, but how do we find it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, obviously one of the, the key strategies for emerging market investors has always been to have sort of, you know, quote unquote boots on the ground. Uh, it's always helpful to have, you know, um, a team on the ground, wherever, you know, you're sourcing deals, just so you can develop those proprietary relationships, which I'm sure Max can attest to, given that he's, uh, you know, you know, based in Cambodia, that's probably also Obor's uh, strategy uh, by setting up an, an office in Phnom Penh. Um, but, you know, of course, it, and part of the reason is because the whole fly in, fly out, um, you know, like style of, of, of doing business is, is really, quite tough in emerging markets where you, where it's a very sort of personal, uh, you know, interpersonal based um, uh, relationship that one needs to develop. Uh, but, you know, besides that, I think, uh, and, and of course, in light of COVID, uh, the, the kind of diligence process is actually quite similar in, in many other ways. Of course, you need to get into a bit more detail. Um, because the sophistication of some of the you know companies or the targets that that you know one looks at might not be uh, on par with uh, with developed markets, but um, you know that said, I think the the rigor with which uh, you know you analyze a company at a high level is still quite um, quite similar in, in in a sense to even uh, developed markets. Yeah. Yeah. No, completely understand. And thinking about it from uh, outside investors' perspective too. Um, what are some of the ways that you would go about maybe uh, de-risking or the idea of do you, of of how you can present uh, maybe a company to shareholders, potential shareholders or investors, in a bit of like a de-risked way, if if that makes sense. What, yeah. What, um, what do you mean by like in 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 a de-risked way, like um... in in I guess more of a way where. Um, if a, if an outside investor may be skeptical of investing in a frontier market mm. specifically, how are ways that you can uh, present it or maybe make the case for this company to be um, an investable option mm-hmm. for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a few things. Uh, I mean, most emerging markets, they offer... Um, I mean, it's. I, I guess in a way, you're you're saying like, what really makes an emerging market attractive or a frontier market attractive for an investor who might not necessarily be comfortable with going into such a market, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, you know, if you look at sort of the bigger emerging markets today, right, whether it's like China or India or Brazil or whatever, you study just kind of wealth creation in these markets, it's been pretty spectacular. So you know, the Chinese equity market basically didn't even exist like 20 years ago. And now it's like shy of $10 trillion. Uh, you know, the same with India, like it's, it's you know, and, and if you look at just kind of like the wealth creation, it's really, it's really just incredible. And so for frontier markets, you just have to kind of look at the level of GDP per capita, the level of consumption per capita, look at the market caps, both in absolute dollars in terms of multiple. And, you know, you're basically looking at countries that are essentially 10, 15 years behind the larger emerging markets, like the Chinas and the Indies of the world. And so some of these economies are like, you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, some countries in East Africa, like, you know, Ethiopia and Rwanda, like I mentioned, Tanzania as well, Kenya, uh, you know, and then you have a few in Central Asia and the Caucasus as well. And that's what we kind of look at. But, you know, it's, it's like, if you really look at it, like, there's a few things that are, I guess, um, consistent across the board. And one of those is like, they are very attractive demographics, right? So that's one thing to, you know, kind of give comfort to any new investor, if you will, going into frontier markets, such as the ones I mentioned. Uh, you know, many of these countries have super young populations that are growing at a very fast rate. 
um, right? If you look at like emerging markets, the median age, at least of the ones that we're looking at is around 20, 29, uh, you know, years old. And BRIC countries, so the Brazil, Russia, India, China is around 35. And then if you look at the G7 countries in the world, it's like 42. So, I mean, it's like, there's, there is quite a significant kind of, you know, disparity between uh, just like the, 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 the population age itself and, and and also the rate at which they're growing is much faster in emerging markets and then you have like the urbanization rate as well you know across some of the main ems that we look at you know urbanization stands uh much lower actually compared to like BRIC countries and oecd countries for example so there is substantial upside for growth there as well um you know if you look at indonesia and the philippines for example uh you know they have an average median age of 27 right by contrast like china and russia have like you know 37 and 40 so it's so, so, so I'm, i i think a, a massive factor is really that especially when you're looking at the consumer um you know industry and sector um so and then the second kind of big factor i think to, to to give some comfort to any new investor is the low labor cost right so if you look at like vietnam um like many of its peers, not only in Southeast Asia, but across emerging markets, they offer a much more attractive cost of labor uh, compared to China, um, you know, and, and, and even, you know, after years of wage growth in China, you know, as well, like, I mean, you, you, now you see China basically moving to more high skilled kind of labor. And so that's, that's, that's what is causing that, that rise in their wages. Uh, but then if you look down at Bangladesh, you know, they have an even stronger advantage in terms of labor costs, which is like 50% cheaper than China and 25% cheaper than Vietnam. So all of this, you know, I guess started, you know, some time ago, like in 2015, 16, 17, and it's been just kind of continuing, but that's another map massive advantage i think for for emerging um some of these emerging or rather frontier markets if you will um you know and um and then of course in addition to those two things uh, i would say that emerging markets also sort of offer a very important hedge especially during periods like now where you know you're in a bit of economic volatility right so uh, the largest emerging markets, um, you know, have become economically sort of like intertwined with the developed markets. So you see that when markets kind of rise and they, they will also do the same. So they tend to rise and fall together. Um, but but for some of the less penetrated emerging markets, so take some of the Southeast Asian EM uh, economies that we just mentioned, uh, they're comparatively like disconnected from international trade and money flows. And so in that sense, they can actually offer um, you know, investment outcomes that are less correlated to global trends, and 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 almost a hedge. So so that's that's actually something that is uh, is is you know pretty pretty comforting in a way for anyone who who's trying to to create some kind of a hedge. And and you know they also many of these markets also start from a much lower economic base, and so their growth is often driven by factors that are way more intrinsic to the market. You know, such as efficiency gains and, you know, just introduction of new technologies and management techniques and stuff, basically low hanging fruit can make a massive difference in some of these more frontier economies. Um, so yeah, so it's another unique opportunity, you know, I guess for um, diversification. And I guess finally, I mean, if you think about like COVID, right, if many of these emerging markets, they just don't have, or frontier markets, if you will, I mean, some of these less developed emerging markets, let's call them, right? They don't have the same fiscal and monetary tools available in the developed markets um, and economies, right? So if you take like, I mean, the US, for example, it's, I mean, they've, they've been able to pump in a bunch of stimulus, so is Europe, so is Japan. Um, but, but, you know, on, 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 this, on the flip side, you know, if you look at some of the economies and the emerging frontier economies in Africa and Southeast Asia, they've had nowhere near the same amount of stimulus, uh, you know, to combat COVID. So, you know, there is this kind of like need as well for, for investment to go in there and, and you know, to, to help some of these companies, which also means that there's opportunities in terms of finding companies that are, you know, um, at better prices and at discounts as well. Maybe the next thing that I would like to touch on really quick would be within these emerging and frontier markets, how do you think the development of these markets will be over the next you know, five to seven years personally? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, in, in all of these markets, they, they, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, interesting sort of like developments that are happening that are going to boost, uh, you know, um, I think investments in the space. I mean, let's take logistics and transport as an example, right? And if you look at sort of 
some of the key catalysts in that sector. Uh, you know, the first thing is obviously there's an increase in like free trade agreements between many of these frontier markets and the rest of the world. So you have, uh, you know, a lot of like uh, the, I mean, like in Africa, for example, you have the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, the AFCTA, which is a trade agreement between like, you know, 50 odd African Union members and the, um, you know, uh, with basically an objective of creating a single continental market for goods and services, um, expanding, you know, like trade within Africa. And I think that started in 2019, but it's becoming one of the world's largest free trade, you know, areas since the WTO really. And, and, you know, I think with this, with the, with kind of the establishment of these kinds of agreements, uh, you know, there's really a huge opportunity to grow, um, you know, for, for many of these emerging markets. And that's going to catalyze, I think, um, investment opportunities as well, investment um, you know, opportunities across the continent. And, 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 and that's just not limited to um, Africa, of course. I mean, I think you're going to see that as well with this whole Belt and Road Initiative. That's something that's going to boost, um, you know, trade across European, Asian and African continents, um, you know, um, in transportation, energy, telco, infrastructure. You know, so we're seeing a lot of uh, Central Asian countries or uh, markets as well, like benefit from that. And I think that's going to increase over the next, uh, you know, five to 10 years. Um, and then and then more broadly, I would say, yeah, you know, you, for all the sort of demographic, for all the macroeconomic reasons that, uh, you know, I, I mentioned previously, you know, with, with regard to population, with regard to sort of the uptick in the middle and affluent classes, uh, and and just kind of the the rising income and consumption, there is going to be um, a huge huge room, I think, for um, you know growth in 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 the sectors that you know I'm looking at, whether it's consumer logistics uh, or um, you know kind of uh, like telco, so you know new economy infrastructure. So I think I think in that sense, there's there's a lot of opportunity, you know, over the next. Um, five to seven years, as you mentioned, you know, in, in all, all three sectors. Great. And to maybe shift gears just a little bit in the, um, in the company milestone section, being in the, um, you know, being in the investment industry and thinking about, uh, and I'm sure having a look around uh, Southeast Asia and Africa as well, how would you mm -hmm. define a good investor? And what are some of the qualities that you would look for? In, in a good in a good investor yes yeah so I mean I think there's a there's a number of like uh, <laughs> you know qualities I think a good investor probably would need to have I mean obviously understanding how the business actually works uh, you know if you have some operational experience that's very helpful that's why you see a lot of management consultants you know who've had seen a variety of businesses sometimes they make great private equity investors because of just the breadth of experience that they have. Um, but then you also need to have some kind of depth and, you know, understand how certain industries, like you really need to deep dive into certain industries uh, and be able to sort of spot trends, uh, you know, and take a kind of proprietary view on the future outlook as well, you know, just instead of aggregating random sort of consensus on, on outlooks. Um, so some folks who are engineers, you know, focusing on a very specific area will be very sharp investors as well because they're just, you know, operational and background, their ability to deep dive. Um, and then I think as well in emerging markets, one one thing to, you know, I guess be aware of is understanding what drives like different stakeholders, you know, uh, whether it's the management team, whether it's the, you know, the shareholders, the guys who, you know, might not be having day-to-day -day influence, but other motives in selling or, you know, liquidating their shares. Um, that's something as well to understand. And that's where really like, you know, having boots on the ground, having that, that, that local context sometimes really plays a, a you know, a, an advantageous role. Uh, and then just kind of having lateral thinking, I think like seeing value where other people can't, uh, that's also uh, kind of important because, you know, sometimes I think you tend to like investors might just kind of focus in on one thing, but then they don't really, you know, just kind of have a 30,000 feet view on, on things. And, and that helps sometimes as well, uh, you know, seeing all the pieces on the chessboard in a way. Um, and then obviously you have to be, you know, it goes without saying, but you have to be kind of courageous. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't think private equity is a risk-taking industry at all. It's more risk-mitigating industry, right? But at the same time in emerging markets, you know, you need to be prepared to, 
to be, you know, counter cyclical in a way, like, you know, kind of back yourself to turn the business around or ride out the market. And, um, you know, I think investors definitely need a healthy dose of skepticism, uh, perhaps more so in frontier markets. Um, because I think it's easy to get burnt in markets like these when you, you know, without any skepticism at all, you need to project conservatively and so on. So on. But you also need to have, uh, you know, sufficient, I think, courage as well. Uh, and I guess the key thing, uh, you know, and, and I think this applies across the board in, in private equity and even in VC, I guess, to a certain extent, uh, is downside protection, right? I think, uh, you know, every, every, ultimately every sort of quote unquote good investor goes into an investment having a solid understanding of the potential downside, baking, basically kind of making sure that they're not going to be, uh, you know, this isn't going to be a loss making investment, <laughs> irrespective of how high the upside might potentially be because, you know, as fun as, you know, making money might be losing it is probably way more dreadful. So, yeah. Um, I think those are kind of just the high level, you know, characteristics I think of a good investor in my view, at least. Yeah. Understood. Especially just trying to find balance across each of those, um, each of those uh, qualities, especially. And one of the things that, you had mentioned, especially with the uh, boots on the mm-hmm. ground and quickly just to, just to hear your thoughts on this, what would be some of the questions or maybe just some of the main questions you would ask a founder when considering an investment? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, as I was also sort of like we, we Max and I were, were discussing this um, on a separate call and, and we were saying that like, you know, at a later stage investment, like where you're sort of like looking at more mature companies, usually with a long standing track record, we typically would look at trying to understand obviously the financials and the operations of the business um, more so than just like, you know, like say the background of the team, uh, which is obviously very important, but, but much, much more important. I think at an earlier stage uh, as, as I experienced as well in the, in, you know, at the VC uh, shop that I was with, uh, but typically, but typically, you know, we would have like a sort of like list of items that we're trying to figure out from the get go. So at a high level, you know, you want to understand obviously what the amount is that the company or the target is looking to raise and the rationale that you know they would be um, that behind them actually raising, right? So you know, why would they? Do they want financial sponsors? Do they want strategics? Then you also want to understand obviously the market size, like you know, and what percentage of their market share they actually have. What do they aim to get, and uh, and and also actually what, what their historical market share is? Because in some cases you might have a market leader in 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 a, in a specific industry on you know at present, but then you actually realize like oh wow like they have like you know like I don't know like say forty percent of the market which is like the most you know but then at the same time you realize that like you know ten years ago they might have had like seventy or sixty percent of the market. So so it's like it might look good now, but then if you really trace back, you realize that oh okay they've actually lost market share even though they're still in the market leader so what's happening you know so 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 i think historical market share data is also interesting and then historical financials you know as a whole is is, is something that we need uh and then besides that you know um has the company really been in any kind of like you know legal troubles like you know as i mentioned before as well like you know have there been any regulatory risks which is something that's important in emerging markets um and then you know of course um, one other thing is, is, you know, on the operational side, there's just a m- multitude of different factors that you need to, uh, you know, take into consideration, depending on the industry, of course, but, you know, is the target kind of performing at or above benchmarks, you know, in terms of inventory, cycle time, uh, are the margins kind of sustainable? Is there enough capacity to support the desired growth? Uh, you know, are they, are they uh, efficiently kind of deploying capital, you know, working capital, human capital? Um, what's the condition of their assets? You know, sometimes there's, uh, there's a risk of basically unplanned uh, capex maybe, um, you know, have they, have they over-invested, under-invested in IT? Are there any planned IT investments depending on the industry again, you know? Um, and then, and then of course, things like, uh, you know, how can they, uh, you know, sort of lead, I mean, like, can the leadership team obviously, like, actually execute based on their business plan? Like, you know, is, is, is it, and, and that's where I guess there's a more of, like, an alignment with, like, the earlier stage VC space when you're really focusing on the team, you know, like, are these people credible, uh, you know, 
and and um, and then I guess one of the key things, uh, especially for more operational PE firms, is to see whether there are any opportunities for operational efficiencies, right? To that may lead to margin and working capital improvements. So, so yeah, I mean, all that. Um, trying to think if there's anything else that we would ask. I guess succession planning, like you know, to understand like uh, if there's any sort of succession plan laid out for key individuals or not, uh, post investment. Uh, post entry of a PE firm, um, yeah, and I think that's that. The, these are kind of the high level thoughts that, that would kind of you know go through. I think a mind of a, um, um, I mean, I, I guess in private equity, especially like in the, at least at a preliminary stage, it gets much much more detailed <laughs> after that. But yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. And and maybe just talk about how the access to funding in some of the markets that you operate in has has changed over the last few years and how COVID may have impacted that. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think in terms of the access to, to funding, um, you know, again, I think a lot of these uh, emerging markets, I mean, in my, in my experience, I would say the access to funding um, has been probably less, it, it, there hasn't been as much access to funding. I think that's one of the key um, opportunities, if you will. So overall, I think EM is probably far less penetrated by international investors, uh, you know, if you compare it to developed markets, right. And and interestingly, I'm, I don't know whether you you guys have access to like, you know, Impea data, like the Emerging, Emerging Market uh, Private Equity Association, which actually recently was rebranded as Global Private Capital Association. Um, but they have very interesting, like sort of data sets, right, that you can look at, they publish it annually. And, um, you know, over time, I think on an annual basis, there's more capital um, in EM than there was 10 years ago, but then relative to developed markets, it's still extremely low. And I think a large part of that is just because um, it's, it's just much harder to find uh, good deals, you know, proprietary sort of, you know, deals through proprietary sourcing capabilities in, in these EM, uh, in these sort of like emerging frontier markets. Um, like I mentioned, you know, the plus side is of course, transactions are a lot, uh, often a lot less competitive and the pricing is potentially, uh, you know, relatively more attractive as well compared to developed markets. Of course, if you compare it within the EM markets, you know, uh, Vietnam and Indonesia and all that, you know, and some sectors are still much more expensive compared to, you know, some other EM, EM markets. But if you, if you compare it absolutely like, you know, next to next to the developed markets, I think I would say, um, you know, they're still relatively cheaper. Uh, you know, um, deals to, to be made. Uh, and then, so, yeah, and of course, the other key thing is, you know, really developing sort of the in-country relationships and networks, you know, uh, which is the other reason why it's tough, I think, and, and why there's not that much access to, to funding in some of these markets. Okay, and maybe just getting, uh, diving into that a little bit more, um, what, what are the kind of multiples that you're, that you're working off of um, in, in some of the markets that you cover? How do, and how do they... Let's say, how do they compare to like U.S. private equity? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in the in the sort of telco space, right? Um, if we, let's talk pre-COVID, I mean, because you know, COVID you know, skews things a little bit. Um, but you know, I mean, e even if you look at, let's just talk COVID. I mean, like during sort of the onset of COVID or whatever, right? I mean, multiples. I think in the, the new economy infrastructure space, the telco mobile network operator space, I think they were. Or trading at around probably around a forty to fifty percent discount from you know our research uh, compared to developed markets, uh, and and these are the markets that we're looking at in across the emerging markets, right? So, um, and then and then in the logistics and transport space, I think they were trading at maybe around like eighteen percent discount, uh, and then if you you know in the consumer space, it was about a fifty percent discount. So what does that actually mean in terms of like multiples? I think in like the emerging market space, what we were seeing is they're trading around like maybe six x for for um, for kind of the telco, uh, you know, new economy infrastructure space, and then for the logistics and transport space, you know, they might have been around eleven uh, x. And uh, you know, for a consumer, it might have been around six, six to seven x. So um, yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, I can only speak to the sectors that you know I look at, but um, but but yeah, that's sort of what we what we were kind of seeing. Okay, and uh, and and during the COVID period, has there been opportunities for for, for lower valuations and like 
being sort of an opportunistic investor, um, given the um, the economic environment in some of these these countries you're working in? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, in terms of um, actually executing on the opportunities, what what happens is obviously there is this kind of like um, this this kind of mismatch in terms of what the price expectations are and what uh, you know the companies or the target companies or the management or shareholders expectations are, which is very normal and expected. Um, you know, especially in the onset of COVID, there was a lot of I think in the beginning phase of COVID, investors were taking a very wait and see approach. And then soon after they decided, okay, this is a good time to transact. Um, the problem is, the challenge rather, is that when you're at that second phase, when you're like, okay, let's transact, um, people on the other side of the table, the management teams and all that usually were like, okay, I think we can ride this out. And then once we ride this out, then we can transact. So basically there was just this this mismatch, I think in terms of like, you know, uh, this, I guess they, many, many companies were under the notion that they can actually re, uh, I mean, kind of weather the storm, come out of the, the, the COVID storm, and then, you know, start negotiating and start uh, transacting. Um, I think amidst all that, like there has been um, opportunities and uh, deals that have been made, but I think on the whole, it's been, it's been challenging for sure, I think across the board for, for most investors. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, there, there have been deals that have been made, uh, including, you know, uh, from, from the platform that I'm on as well uh, it, during the COVID period. Okay, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And um, just sort of final question on this sort of market um, mm -hmm. opportunities. What, um, if you had to pick one country and sector mm -hmm. that, you, mm -hmm. that you'd want to invest in, um, which ones would you go for? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a, I mean, it's, if I had to pick one at the moment, I think, um, well, I mean, I think Vietnam is, is very interesting, right? Um, Vietnam, and, and in terms of sector, I would say maybe just the consumer, I mean, a, broadly the consumer space, right? Um, I mean, the reason I say Vietnam first is because, I mean, Vietnam's combination of like, you know, political improvements um, and sustained market reform, right, has translated into a much better environment for business over the years. Um, you know, they've steadily sort of pursued, um, you know, increased integration into the global economy beginning, you know, first with that uh, in 1986, when they, when they continued, you know, sort of the, you know, or rather, I mean, they, they, they started the whole foreign investment thing, allowing foreign investments back in 1986, but then they continued, you know, with ASEAN free trade zone, uh, you know, in 95, and then the free trade agreement with the US in 2007, and then joined WTO in 2007 as well. And, and right now, like today, they're party to like, you know, 13 major like uh, global, uh, you know, free trade agreements. And because of that, you know, tariffs on both imported and exported goods have steadily decreased. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the international sort of trade has, has fueled their own economic growth. Of course, above and beyond that, um, Vietnam also has an extremely strong, uh, you know, macroeconomic story as well, you know, stable currency, favorable demographics, uh, you know, increasingly uh, important status as well as a geostrategic manufacturing hub. Um, you know, so that's something they've, I mean, I'm sure you know this as well from Cambodia's, uh, you know, perspective. And I think Cambodia is also a beneficiary of it, but the US-China trade war, I think Vietnam has, you know, been a key uh, beneficiary of the shift of production away from China, um, you know, which is a trend, I think, personally, that is going to, it's going to only accelerate and be further bolstered with this current, you know, pandemic and crisis that we're in, where, you know, China is basically shutting down a bunch of its manufacturing capacity and moving it to, to Vietnam. I mean, not on a large scale, but key companies are doing it. And, um, and, and also, I mean, they've, you know, they they just have an incredibly, um, uh, you know, strong economy and, you know, the, the amount of sort of the uptick in, in the middle and, and affluent class, uh, you know, in, in Vietnam is actually something that I think is going to fuel uh, a lot of the consumption. So the consumer industry in Vietnam, I think, is something that I'm particularly like optimistic about, uh, you know, over the next, you know, 10, 10, 15 years. Okay, great. Yeah. Th yeah. Thank you for the breaking that down. Um, we just want to move on to our last uh, part of the podcast. And it's really just more about sort of um, some of these interpersonal things that have 
that have guided you in your career and life. What's a skill that you think the, the world needs more of that you're trying to cultivate in yourself? Mm, yeah, uh, I, I don't think there's like one specific skill per se. I think it's more like a group of skills maybe if you were like in finance there're just a lot of super obviously intelligent people you know as they are in many industries with a strong sort of you know set of hard skills um you know just as like they are in other fields right but i think finding a balance between the hard and soft skills is i think one of the biggest challenges that our industry faces um and it's not limited to finance or private equity but just more broadly actually so you know uh, just kind of the social, emotional, you know, um, skills are being more crucial, actually. And even technological kind of skills are being more crucial, uh, you know, um, especially as, uh, you know, uh, machines and stuff are taking over, uh, you know, more physical, repetitive, you know, tasks. So if you ask, I mean, you, this is, I guess this is the kind of question that HR specialists would be like, you know, in the best position to answer. But I have a few friends who are like in executive search and HR and stuff, and they, you know, uh, you know, my, many of them might, might might face a lot of difficulties actually in recruiting candidates who have the necessary soft skills. Uh, you know, for despite the fact that their hard skills might be incredible, so I think that's something that you know um, that people in the industry need to work on. Yeah, I mean, in in my case, actually, like when I joined, for me, I was focusing a lot more on the on the hard skills because I came from a background where I didn't come from accounting or finance and and so on. So you know, for me, my goal was really to improve that. But I think developing the soft skills is 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 potentially much more challenging as well. Yeah, I would I would agree. I think even yeah, in the finance profession, it's um, you could say there's, there's very much like you can have a mix between introverts and extroverts or type a type b but it's hard to find right. combine the both combine both yeah yeah exactly yeah and what, what and I, think, I think it's probably it's probably even more it's probably even more important as well in the vc space right when you're dealing with like management teams and founders and you know it's just yeah. it's very very personal yeah. i'm sure you, yeah. i think one thing that's definitely happened is that there's this like celebritization of investing right. that's happening where you've got like people running podcasts and launching funds and then they've got an angel list rolling fund and it's like all kind of feeds from their twitter it's like that kind of stuff is definitely you're seeing um a lot more move in that direction but i think yeah 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 so so yeah it's it's an interesting thing thing to focus on um for sure and what have been um what have been some books that have really impacted you in both your um your your business and, and social life well, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not sure I'd say there's like one specific book, but actually on that topic, you know, since we were just talking about that whole, you know, the soft skills, one actually book that comes to mind that I read when I was in college um, that actually left quite an impression on me was this book called The Fuzzy and the Techie. I don't know if you've come across it by Scott Harley, um, but in the book, Hartley basically like talked about, you know, how liberal arts uh, is humanizing technology. So like the techies, uh, those who have basically mastered disciplines like engineering and computer science are like very important for the for the world, uh, you know, especially in driving big data powered by algorithms and whatever, um, you know, uh, you know, to generate crime reports, Netflix recommendations and all that stuff. But his point is that basically we also need to consider the valuable role of the fuzzies. So not just the techies, but the fuzzies as well, who have basically, you know, help put our put all these kind of like tools into context and ask the difficult questions about the data. So it's definitely a pretty interesting read that I would highly recommend. Um, and it makes you wonder as well about how artificial intelligence you know, touches human lives, like how should privacy and like, you know, civil, you know, like civil liberty concerns be addressed and like, you know, what are the negative effects uh, of designing technology in a way that it's like inherently addictive, um, you know, so all these kind of questions are, are, they have very great answers. And I think that's, that's something that he, uh, he kind of addresses. Um, and he, I know in the book, he, he talks about like, there was like this, you know, he mentions of how you know how STEM, right, which is like science, technology, engineering, um, and math, like he's like, they should make that like steam to like add art into that. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, and just talks about the difficulty of basically training all these soft skills that we just discussed, you know, whether it's empathy or creativity or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and talking about that, like designing technology to be, you know, fully beneficial, um, you know, we've seen a lot of um, 
recent missions to to space. What, what, yeah. on what timeline do you think um, humans should be inhabiting Mars? <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, that's you got to ask Musk that question. I have no idea, man. It's uh, I think I think this is a uh, we 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 might be able to see. I mean, like serious progress. I think in our lifetime. Um, but in terms of like, uh, if you're looking for like an exact year, um, I mean, tough to say, I may, maybe in terms of a decade, we can say maybe like, you know, three decades out from now, maybe, okay. I don't know. That's it. Who do you think is going to get there first? Bezos or Mark? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's a tough one. I, I don't know. It's, uh, we'll have to see. I think Musk has some kind of a low-key advantage given the fact that he hasn't actually been to space yet um you know he he might have he might be just kind of like lurking behind and learning from from the other space billionaires but um but but <laughs> and then and then making his move cal you know calculating and making his move but uh yeah but yeah i mean maybe musk <laughs> okay great and um just wrapping it up our, our, yeah. our final closing question is um you know, what, what is the most important bit of advice that you've ever been given? Well, actually, actually, what, probably the most important advice that I've ever been given is to sleep, you know, get at least seven to eight hours of sleep. And I think a lot of us, you know, even in the industry, like in finance and stuff, there's just this like thing about, oh, you know, you, you, like, just sleeping, like, I mean, especially in the beginning, I think I was like, you know, at times like sleeping maybe for like five, six hours or five hours, sometimes four hours. And I think it's, you know, just sleeping makes you super productive, honestly, like, you know, and, and that's something I think a lot of people take for granted. And especially when you're like new in the industry, there's like almost this thing about like, oh, like I only slept this much, you know, uh, and it's not a good thing at all. Like, it's not something to be proud of. I think it's, it's the best thing is to actually just get good, a good night's sleep and, and be like super productive, uh, you know, during the time that you're, that you're working. So that's, that's a good piece of advice that I, that I got. And, um, trying to sort of you know work on <laughs> yeah I, I agree I, I do think that that whole culture is being is being questioned anyway that sort of um growing yeah of, of finance yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah well um on that note thank you so much for, for coming on rising giants today it's been it's been really great to have you on yeah, well, th thank you both, uh, Dom and Max. I mean, this is uh, you know always a uh, always a pleasure. It's so much fun to to chat with you guys both, uh, you know, off the podcast, but now now I guess finally on the podcast as well. So, <laughs> thanks for having me on. Yeah.